In between the ridiculous 60s, where anybody could show up and run, and today, where the barrier of entry is impossibly high, there was a time when a small team, properly equipped, could race and be competitive in Formula One. Now, it was still a thoroughly insane thing to do, but nobody has ever accused Eddie Jordan of doing what was expected or what was easy. So when Eddie wanted to do Formula One, it's only fitting that the first car he built would be beautiful, fast, iconic, and the center of one of motorsports' great controversies. This is the Jordan 191, and this is the Race Car Podcast. Okay, so we're back. A little bit quicker turnaround, I guess, on this one, because it took me three or four weeks to do the Corvette C5R episode, which, you know, there was a lot more to it. The car had a longer life. But uh, the Jordan 191, apparently I've turned around in about three days. So we'll see how it goes. But we are back to Formula One finally. And as I was born in 1984, back to what I consider the greatest era of the sport, at least as far as the cars are concerned, the so-called V10 era. These are the race cars that really scream race car when you look at them. And they also scream literally because they're powered by insane, naturally aspirated V8s, 10s, and 12s that rev to the goddamn moon. And while obviously there were more successful cars because the 191 was never a race winner, few cars of this era are as fondly remembered and really as loved today as the 191. So, as always, Jordan 191, let's get into it. Eddie Jordan was a fairly successful racer in his youth, but he said he got into it too late. He was born in 1948 and he began karting in 1971. He spent time in Formula Ford, Formula Atlantic, even as high as, uh, I think he ran a single Formula 2 race. But Eddie realized pretty quickly if he had a future in motorsport, it was as a team owner rather than a driver. Jordan's first real success there came as a team owner in British Formula 3. Eddie actually gave Ayrton Senna a test in late 82, but couldn't sign him for 83, so he went with Martin Brundle, who had a season-long fight with Senna for the title, with Senna narrowly taking the victory. But Eddie Jordan Racing had been established as a team to be reckoned with. In 1989, EJR won the International F3000 Championship, and by 1990, he was looking at Formula One. Eddie formed Jordan Grand Prix in 1991 and actually brought in three engineers to work on the car. Andrew Green came on board to design the suspension, and in a roundabout way, he is actually still working for Jordan. Green is currently the technical director for Aston Martin Formula One, which of course is the successor to Jordan, by way of Midland, Spiker, Force India, and Racing Point. Mark Smith was the second engineer, and his responsibilities were largely design of the transmission and engine installation. Lastly, Eddie recruited Gary Anderson to develop the car's aerodynamics. Anderson and Smith both came over from Reynard, whose chassis Jordan had been using in F3000. Gary became Jordan Grand Prix's first technical director as well, so while aero was his direct job, Gary was also overseeing the project as a whole. Interestingly, this was Gary Anderson's first clean-sheet car design. He'd done work at Brabham and McLaren previously, but the 1991 Jordan was his first proper whole race car. He said when designing the car, they didn't want to just copy what other people did, to look at pictures, as he said. And for that reason, the car looks pretty different from the other cars on the grid. So in 1990, uh, Tyrrell had pioneered the high-nose aero concept with the 019, Very simply, the low nose cone of the current Formula One cars at the time were at odds with the flat bottom diffuser aero setup. It tended to send air over and around the car. By picking the nose up, the 019's designer, Harvey Postlewaite, figured that more air could be moved under the car. 
air going under the car is fast moving air. Fast moving air is low pressure air. And low pressure air under the car means downforce. Tyrrell's idea turned out to be the right one because from the mid 90s until today, we've basically lived in a high nose concept world. Jordan's car picked up this concept as well, but where the 019 joined a relatively flat wing to the nose with angled pylons, Gary Anderson penned a kind of gracefully curving front wing for his car that met, no that met the nose much more elegantly than the 019. Uh, the leading edge of the wing was also well forward of the nose itself. It's a really interesting setup at the front. The same is also true for the diffuser at the rear. Rather than being kind of boxed with a few fins, it has two curved tunnel exits, and the sides of it are kind of excitingly curved outward towards the ground. Even the airbox behind the driver's head has this great forward curve and point. It almost looks like a shape you'd see in like a, the windows of a gothic cathedral. I feel pretty strongly that Gary Anderson would have been a hell of a road car designer, because this car was almost needlessly pretty. I... Highly recommend Googling it if you've never seen it. Um, it is, it's it's the prettiest car of, the, of its era. And on my other show, the 107% F1 show, we just did our top five best looking cars. I put the Jordan 191 as what I thought to be the best looking Formula One car of all time. So the engine formula for 91 was naturally aspirated three and a half liter engines. And the Jordan was designed around the Judd EV. It was also being run by Lotus for 1991, while fellow Judd runner Brabham had moved on to Judd's GV V10. The EV, however, was a V8. And while it was a known, competitive engine, it was no longer the latest or the greatest. One of the themes, though, of this era of Jordan is luck, however. And after a wind tunnel test before the season, Gary Anderson and Andrew Green stopped for a cup of tea and got talking to a guy that they met there. Turned out that the guy worked for Cosworth, and he told Gary and Andrew that they were thinking of supplying a second team. Cards were exchanged, a deal was made shortly after, and Jordan became a Ford customer team. So, I just said that Cosworth wanted to supply a second team, but before adding Jordan, Cosworth was already supplying six teams. Benetton was their works team, and then customers Colony, LaRousse, AGS, Fond Metal, and Footwork. So what they meant was that they wanted to supply a second team with their new engine, the HB. To this point, only Benetton ran that engine. Cosworth's customer engines ran the aging DFR, which was a variant of the DFV, which dates all the way back to 1967. One of the all-time great racing motors, but by this point, more than a little bit long in the tooth. The HB was an all-new motor, with a narrower 75-degree V to the DFR's 90. It initially produced about 630 horsepower, but later variants would top 700. Compared to the V10s and V12s of the era, the HB lacked a little bit of power, but it was a compact, lightweight package that returned better fuel mileage than the 10s and 12s. Jordan's engine, which was the HB4, would be an earlier specification than Benetton's engine. I believe it's actually they had to be separated by two, so there would be a specification between Benetton and Jordan's actual engine spec. Eddie Jordan was an absolute master of knowing the things that he could and could not or should not save money on, the HB is an example of a place where he knew the money needed to be spent. On the flip side of that, when it came time to test the car, they couldn't afford paint. So the car was tested in plain black carbon fiber, which was probably the only way to make the 191 look even cooler. Uh, that test was carried out by former F1 driver John Watson, by the way. So I should point out at this time, the car was not called the 191. So it was actually called the Jordan 911 and it is not still called that for basically the exact reason you would think. But to be honest, I think Eddie did this on purpose. 
He called the car the 911. Porsche didn't like it, but they didn't compete in Formula One, so they really couldn't sue him over it. So they settled. The name of the car was changed to the 191, and Porsche let Eddie use a 911 for the next 18 months. All I'm saying here is I would not put it past Eddie Jordan to have called up the, nine, uh, the 911 with something like that in mind. As far as sponsors, Jordan was in a little bit of a tough spot. Eddie's main sponsor in F3000 was Camel, uh, and he planned to bring them along with the similarly yellow-colored Kodak film brand with him for his F1 project. But Benetton swooped in and stole Camel from him, which also made Kodak back out. So Eddie's next uh, thing to do is he went to work on PepsiCo, trying to get 7-Up on the car. And after some persuading, he did manage to secure their sponsorship. So with the car now being green... Basically, they made a list of companies who use green as their color to try to fill up his sponsorship slots. The best one of these, in terms of just pure spite, is that Kodak's biggest competitor was Fujifilm. Fujifilm's main color is green, and Eddie got sponsorship from them along with his home, home country of Ireland, and the car was pretty much sponsored. Also, apparently, Fujifilm paid more money for the sponsorship than 7-Up, but he said that Fujifilm was just so used to paying a lot of money for sponsorships that they didn't even get the biggest spot on the car. 7-Up still got the biggest spot on the car. Fujifilm got kind of like the associate sponsorship car uh, spot, but still actually paid the most money for the sponsorship, which, is, I, which I think is kind of funny. So while John Watson did the early test, Eddie still needed money for the season, so he brought in drivers that had backing. Frenchman Bertrand Gascho and the Italian Andrea De Cesaris. Eddie was familiar with both of them, having competed against Gasho in F3000 while fielding a car there for DeCesaris. Both were at the time still fairly well-regarded drivers, so Eddie didn't just stick anybody that would pay in the car. Gasho and DeCesaris were both legitimate drivers. A major hurdle that Jordan faced going to the season was pre-qualification. The grid was 26 cars, qualifying was for 30, but at the time there were generally 34 cars showing up to the races. Being a new team, Jordan would have to pre-qualify. That is to say, they would have to qualify to qualify for the race. Along with the single-car teams of Fawn, Metal, and Coloni, the Jordans, Dallaras, and Modenas would compete in the session before qualifying. Four of the eight cars would get on to move to proper qualifying and still possibly get sent home. A problem that Jordan faced here was actually that they were on the Goodyear tires. Goodyear was a better race tire than the other option, Pirelli, but the Pirelli switched on quicker. Because pre-qualifying happened earlier in the day when it was generally cooler, the Goodyear tires wouldn't work quite as well. If Jordan could get through pre-qualifying, however, they would be in good shape for qualifying proper and for the race. Now, all that said, the first race of the season was the U.S. Grand Prix in Phoenix, and getting the, tire, uh, the tires up to temperature there would not be an issue. So in pre-qualifying for that race, Dallara's two cars for Piro and Leto went quickest, followed by Nicola Larini in a Modena, and then uh, Bertrand Gasho in fourth. DeCesaris, which who was in the other Jordan, would miss out. He'd pre-qualify fifth because of a missed shift on his fast lap. The pace of the Dallaras, Modenas, and Jordan were legitimate, however, uh, when it came to qualifying. The Dallaras would start the race ninth and tenth. Lorraine and his Modena would start 17th, and Gasho would qualify the Jordan 191 14th out of 30. As to the race, Gasho would run as high as eighth, and he would finish tenth after the car failed near the end. This would actually be the only race of the season that one of the Jordans would miss. From the second race on, the Jordans and Dallaras easily became the class of the pre-qualifying field, besting the Modenas and others fairly easily. Additionally, it would only take until the fifth race of the season for Jordan to score their first points with the 191, DeCesaris coming home fourth ahead of the fifth-place Gasho. This was huge for Jordan because pre-qualifying reshuffled halfway through the season. 
By scoring those points, Jordan ensured they would no longer have to pre-qualify from the ninth race of the season onwards. Delara had also scored points, lifting them out of pre-qualifying, along with Modna. Modna hadn't scored any points, but they managed a 7th place finish, which was better than three other teams who were now demoted to pre-qualifying. That would be Brabham, AGS, and Footwork. So, if you're familiar with the 191, you know that aside from being gorgeous and being good enough to make the Jordan GP experiment happen, its number one claim to fame is that it was the first car Michael Schumacher ever drove in Formula 1. So, let's take a look at how that happened. Jordan had a decent pair of drivers, so there's no obvious reason why Schumacher would have been in the car. And he wouldn't have been if it weren't for a taxi driver named Eric Court. On the way to a sponsor event, Gasho and Court were involved in a traffic accident. It's unclear from my research who was at fault, but I lean towards Gasho because apparently Court became aggressive with him, which afterwards Court and Gasho both basically the same thing, but... Gasho's reaction was to spray the man in the face with CS gas, also known as tear gas, which he claimed was in self-defense. And while it is probably true that he was defending himself, CS gas is highly illegal to use, and Gasho was originally sentenced to 18 months in prison. The sentence would come down to nine months, and he would eventually only serve two, but it still left Eddie Jordan looking for a driver before round 11 at Spa. So Gerd Kramer, who was a sports marketing chief for Mercedes, uh, told Eddie he had to look at Michael Schumacher, who was driving in Sauber Mercedes sports cars. He said he's fast, he's the business, he's the best. Eddie told Gerd, stop telling him how good Michael is and tell him how much money he's got. Eddie also said he didn't even know how to spell Schumacher uh, and he did not have any interest in him at all. Eddie's interest at the time was the survival of the team. So when Mercedes came with $150,000 a race for a seat for Schumacher, Eddie was more than happy to put, them, to put him in the car. Michael tested the 191 at Silverstone, and the team called Eddie to have him make sure that the circuit that Michael was running was their normal test circuit because he was so much faster than DeCesaris or Gasho had been. When Michael came into the pits, they told him to take it easy out there, to which Michael responded, I am taking it easy. That continued at Spa, which was a track that Schumacher really hadn't spent a lot of time at when he showed up to race the 191. He qualified the car 7th, 7 tenths ahead of teammate DeCesaris, and caused something of a sensation at the race. You must be very happy with your results. Yeah, sure, I'm really happy. But uh, anyway, I have to say, with this car, you can do this qualifying time. You know, uh, the car feels really good, and uh, it's a lot of fun to drive. And for tomorrow, what is your strategy? Finish the race. Unfortunately, his clutch would fail in the first lap of the race, but Michael's point was made. Spa would be Schumacher's only race in the 191, however, as Flavio Briatori swooped in and signed Michael to his Benetton team. After some legal wrangling, uh, mostly because Benetton at the time was running Roberto Moreno, so Eddie advised Moreno to sue Benetton. I think he got, a, he got an injunction from the Italian courts or something like that, because basically they couldn't take away Roberto Moreno's right to work. So he sued him for like a million dollars or something like that. Eddie represented him because, you know, why wouldn't Eddie Jordan do that? They all kind of worked it out. Eddie got a little bit of a payoff, and they also actually got Roberto Moreno in the Jordan for the next two races. So DeCesaris was actually the only driver who would do the whole season for Jordan, as Moreno was replaced for the last three races with another guy who brought some money, one of my all-time favorite drivers, Alex Zanardi. In, in those three races, I think it's probably fair to say that Alex got his money's worth. Gary Anderson basically said that 
Alex Zanardi only really had one speed. He was fast all the time. So is as Gary likes to say, he was really wringing the car's neck. And apparently he broke more stuff on the car in those three races than they had through the whole rest of the season because Alex liked using the curbs and I, I don't think that the car particularly liked it. So they would have to, you know, he would go out in one car and then they would get the other car ready for qualifying while they repaired the other car. And it was it was just a whole mess. Luckily, they were at the end of the season uh, because Zanardi basically used up their whole, uh, you know, their whole uh, cache of spares. By the end of the season, Jordan would actually finish fifth in the Constructors' Championship, which is a pretty fantastic result for a rookie team. And DeCesaris would finish ninth in the Drivers' Championship. Jordan beat some pretty historic teams like Terrell, Brabham, and Lotus in the very first season. The only teams they lost to, honestly, there's not really a shame in being beaten by Ferrari, McLaren, Williams, and Benetton. Those are the only teams that ran ahead of Jordan. This impressive effort in the championship would win Jordan a factory engine deal for the next season, which saved them money, but it hurt their performance. So the deal was with Yamaha, and their engine was the V12 OX99, but that engine, a little bit of a mess. It was overweight, it was underpowered, it was massively flawed. Uh, to hear Gary Anderson talk about the thing, they actually had the engine seizing just when they were on the stand warming them up. They're also kind of hit or miss. You would get some that were good and just some that wouldn't run at all. You know, like 100 horsepower differences between engines. You know, they'd be going around the track, and by the time they came back to the pits, there was just there was no oil left in the pan. So they actually ended up having to build a scavenge pump for the engine because Yamaha wouldn't do it. And then, you know, they... they picked up just a massive amount of speed on the straights and a whole bunch of horsepower and so by the end of the season they kind of got the thing to work but it really wasn't the engine that they were going to have going forward also allegedly i, I remembered hearing this story the yamaha deal had been signed before spa and after running behind a brabham yamaha for a bit schumacher had told jordan they were going to have issues with it just said it it was just not a fast motor michael was apparently not not really impressed by the engine and he was right about that, because the Jordan 192 scored only a single world championship point, despite being otherwise largely similar to the 191. While the success of the 191 didn't move to the 192 or the 193 after that, it did set the Jordan Grand Prix team up on a winning path. Perennially an underdog, Jordan cars would win four races and nearly won a driver's championship for Heinz Harold Frentzen in 1999. The team actually does still live on today in the form of Aston Martin F1, which is a direct descendant of the Jordan, or what, what, what they refer to as the Silverstone team. Anyway, that's pretty much it for the story of the 191. Uh, gorgeous, fast, historically relevant, and about everything I could ask for in a podcast subject. The next episode, I think, is going to be the Porsche 917. I've been trying to decide if I'm going to try to cover all of the variants in one episode, or if I just want to go and do the next episode to have it be like the 917K and the 917LH, then I could do a separate episode on stuff like the 917, 10, 20, and 30. I think that's probably the way to do it. I prefer this style podcast. You know, it, it looks like it's going to clock in probably somewhere around 22 minutes, you know, instead of the 45 minutes that I did in the last one, you know, ADD and all that. But uh, so it'll probably end up being multiple episodes. So Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, criticisms, not criticisms, actually, I don't want those. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RaceCarPodcast. Shoot me an email, RaceCarPodcast at gmail.com. But uh, that's pretty much it. So next time, Porsche 917. Catch you guys later.